So one of the things, if you are a student of Scripture, you will know about uh, Paul is that he's one of the most obvious writers in, in the whole New Testament. And by obvious, I mean he's sort of easy to study because he's so patterned in the way that he writes. And so we're at this place now where there's a directional signal that he's going to flip on so that we can understand he's taking us in a direction that has been a little different than the one he has brought us through in the first chapter of Philippians. In verses 1 through 26, if you've been with us since the launch of this series about seven weeks ago, we have spent a great deal of time talking about joy. That's the premise of this book. And that joy, according to the Apostle Paul, and he knows this because Jesus has written this truth on his heart, joy is not bound to circumstantial happiness. Joy is actually something that is an inner peace, it's an inner solitude, it's an inner resolution, if you will, that Jesus puts in us that allows us to have, have this kind of this confidence in him no matter what is going on. And so in verses 1 through 26, Paul gives us this self-example. In fact, he ends this section of Scripture by telling us this. He says, you know, it's been written for you to suffer, and you have heard that I am still suffering. He, he end caps this whole teaching in Philippians chapter 1 with this idea that suffering is likely going to be a normalcy for the Christian at times in life. And for him right now, he's in this Philippian jail cell, falsely in prison. And so he's driving home the point that Jesus' steadfast love and grace is ultimately what we need to sustain us during hard times. And that if we look to circumstances for that kind of unassailable joy, we're going to be sorely disappointed. That's the whole first chapter until we get to uh, verses 27 through 30 and beyond. What we're going to start seeing now is that Paul has told us all this stuff for a very important reason. It's a, a healthy and benevolent setup, if you will, that leads to an incredibly important command. He says those who are genuinely in Jesus, right, that's all of us in Christ, we should be corporately united in our love for each other and the work of the gospel through the local church. So he takes this great concept of perseverance, power, and joy throughout all of life, no matter what is happening, and he says, now I want you to apply this to your individual walk with Jesus and your corporate walk with the body of Christ as you labor for the gospel in the world. And what he's saying is, is no matter how hard remaining faithful to Jesus can be at times, this is what he's going through, he is faithful to Jesus, in a season of life that is difficult, he's saying as individuals and a body, the Philippian church, we're to strive to have that same attitude of joy in us that he had in that cell. And so from here on out, Paul does what he does best. He starts describing uh, how an important belief about Jesus, a theology, if you will, shapes the way we're supposed to live. He is able to, to remain joyful in Jesus and the work of the gospel while suffering. And he's going to tell us to do the same thing now, that this is an attitude that he prays will be in our hearts too. And as we'll see in the middle of this talk, this is something Jesus also prayed for us to be. So over these next chapters, we've kind of aptly titled this little series within a series, Walking Worthy of Jesus, because that's the literal charge that he gives us. And he makes this connection that says, listen, if you've been hearing about the joy of Jesus, and those of you in this room that truly know it, to know the joy of Jesus means it must cause you, and I mean that word re relatively strongly, to genuinely know the, the joy of Jesus should compel you to live faithfully for Jesus in our world, and certainly us as a body together. And so this next section of Philippians, it's a wonderful book, because this mind-stretching theology of joy is now married, not that it hasn't been practical, but it's been very practical on the internal side of life for the past five talks. We've been talking a lot about how joy sustains the heart. Now what Paul says is once you have joy and once you're sustained, there's, a, there's an otherworldly application here. It's how you can honor and serve Jesus even when life gets hard. Not just circumstances that make life hard for us, but circumstances that at times make life hard for the forward advancement of the gospel. That's what he's going to begin talking about, what we're supposed to be walking worthy of. And here we get some pretty important things that he says to do, and we'll unpack them. But he basically says we are to serve God faithfully by treasuring each other, meaning the, the family of Christ, guarding and sharing God's love with others. 
And this leads us to the first truth, this first walking worthy idea that Paul gives us in Philippians. And it is this, it be behind me. So read it with me and meditate on it with me for these next moments. He says, to walk worthy of Jesus, you must learn to love the church family God has placed you in like he does. And in Philippians 1.27, um, what, what we read here is this. And let me, let me maybe qualify like he does. Paul has a deep love for God's church. He's planted many of them. And he has a deep love for God's church, God's people, because Jesus has a deep love for God's people and God's church. So you can begin to see the domino effect of how um, who Jesus is shapes who Paul is. And then who Paul is, is he's instructing us to, to essentially be shaped by who Jesus is. It's this cycle of disciple-making maturity. So in Philippians 1.27, I'll reread this section. He says, whatever happens, right? There's that idea. Whatever happens. He basically just said, it doesn't matter. All of the circumstances of life, personally and for the sake of the gospel, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, remember, at this point, he's not sure whether or not he's going to live or not. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, remain in a cell or even worse, I'm executed. He says, I know, I will know that you stand firm, in the one spirit, striving together as, for, uh, as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, here Paul's clear he, when he says that our individual love for Jesus, that's kind of what we've been talking about, how Jesus shapes us when it comes to joy. He's clear here when he says our individual love for Jesus is supposed to create a unified spirit of love for one another. Grace received always is grace to be poured out in another way. Christians are not like stop gaps for grace. We're conduits to continue to spread it. And here is the way we spread it according to Paul in this passage. It's fair to say, while we'll look at several marks of what a life that is walking worthy of Jesus is supposed to look like over these next weeks, all of them are rooted in this. It's the foundation of living in and displaying Christ's love to others. And this really makes a lot of sense because Paul just told us how living in the grace of Jesus, recognizing Jesus' permanent and eternal presence in his life, even to the point of death, what we talked about last week, it gave him this otherworldly power to endure some of life's terrible circumstances. And now he says that same presence of Jesus is supposed to do something else. It's supposed to create a special bond in all of us, through all of us, God's people, because through it, God intends to show himself to the world. So think about that. Our love of God and love for each other is one of the primary ways that God says, I'm going to show the world that I am real. Paul's literally telling us the love and the joy of Jesus that he has deeply experienced. It's too wonderful to not share with others. And one of the best ways that we can share it with others is by letting the people in our lives see it exemplified in the unified life and spirit of his, his church. This is a talk on ecclesiology, the belief of the church. There's a lot of writing in the Bible about it. And so if you think of this analogy, right, an individual relationship in Jesus shaping a corporate family that then becomes a powerful entity to do stuff for God. This is why Paul's kind of blurring the line. He's going back and forth between these singular and plural phrases. He's talking to the Philippians as both individuals and a unified people, plural. And there's really no distinction in that. He's saying you guys are all individual Christians who make up a certain type of family. You're all individual believers, but as individual Christians, you're to stand firm in one unified spirit as the Philippian church. It's a very messy line in Jesus, but also connected to each other. And so what does this unified spirit look like in a church family? Well, we'll unpack certain themes throughout these weeks, but the, the big kind of rock in the jaw, the, the premise of where Paul is going is this idea of humility. So later on in this book, Paul will teach us it's a, it's a group of people who, because they so deeply understand the sacrifice Jesus made for them, which should humble us, right? It's a humility. It's, it's a recognition of Jesus' grace 
that leads to life, hope, peace, and joy in this world. Because we really understand that, and we recognize, as we say at our church regularly, that grace is free, but it is not cheap, right? It costs Christ his life. Once we begin to really understand that, we as God's people should begin to display the same selfless attitude and traits towards one another, and certainly those that are not even ours. This is a, a hard attitude that, that knows no boundary. It matters in the way we conduct ourselves with each other, and certainly those in our lives that are not even in Christ yet. What's happening here is people, because of their deep love for Jesus, are learning to have a deep love for each other. And connected to that is this, this secondary idea, that they're also a group of people who've learned to treasure the work God has set them apart to do to advance the gospel of his grace. And so remember, this is a long time ago now as far as our teaching goes, but gospel partnership, we just received a slew of members a few weeks ago, the idea of gospel partnership, a group of people committing to a local body to serve the work of the kingdom, that comes from the first chapter of Philippians. Paul gives us this principle, united with each other for Jesus, for the work of the gospel. It comes from this section that, if we're not careful, can just look like a treatise on how to deal with suffering. He's also saying, listen, one of the reasons we're going to suffer is because we're going to be faithful to Christ. Suffering has different forms and different versions. I'm not saying everybody's going to have a situation like Paul, but I am saying it's, it's very obvious that the Bible teaches us there's likely going to be tensions at time in our lives when we're trying to serve Christ. And so this unified love for each other and God's mission, it stems from God himself. It shapes a culture in a church. And the culture comes from the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love, care, and treat each other. This is not something Paul just made up. This is kind of like an ancient truth. It's always existed. The love and the care that God has for his Son and his Holy Spirit and the reciprocal love that goes all ways, this is the root of this. And it is so important for a church to grasp that Paul writes about it extensively in many places. He gives us clear pictures of what it looks like. And so I want to give you another analogy. This is almost the same teaching, but it's from another book of Ephes- in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says that our love for each other is a literal and direct reflection of God's love to the world. He takes this idea and expounds upon it a little more concretely there. He tells us that even though the church, right, and when I say church, I'm talking capital C now. God's people, past, present, and future, those who follow and pursue Jesus as Lord. That church, right, all over the globe, all over the place, it spans the globe. It spans time. It spans history. It spans every tribe, tongue, and culture. Even in this room, our life journeys are incredibly diverse. Yet for this season, we're all together in this room serving Jesus. Incredibly diverse. Ultimately, we are given this life by, by Jesus and unified uh, in him through his Holy Spirit. So there's this interesting thing that happens here, right? Very diverse people unified in a very singular God. Even though the church is very diverse, no matter where you go, ultimately, for those truly pursuing Christ, there is one body of believers because we are all indwelled by his Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells us, certainly in Philippians, but really gets to the root of this in Ephesians. He goes on to say, because we're all indwelled by the same Holy Spirit, we're all one in the same faith and Lord. And one of the key words to understanding the oneness of God, our pursuit of him, is whether or not we actually understand Jesus as Lord. That might actually be a better way to describe what faith in Jesus is. The word belief is a good word. Don't get me wrong. Faith is a good word. They're biblical words. But I think the reality of belief and faith is when Jesus becomes Lord of life. That's a different way of understanding who God is. One is the ability to maybe to trust in Jesus or to believe in him as, as God. That's not a bad thing. But when it's disconnected from seeing him as Lord pursuing him, submitting to his ways, honoring and loving him in all situations, that's the catalyst for a different type of faith. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here. It means that even though the, the church is historically a beautifully diverse living being, 
It takes uh, different shapes and sizes. It has different cultures, no matter where God plants are in the world. Any of you who have a different, have a church background or you've moved to this area and worshiped at another place, you know there is a common thread in our churches and a very uncommon thread. We are unified in who Jesus is, but we are very free to be diverse in our expression of what that looks like. And so what happens here is God, he manages to bring about a unique and everlasting unity in a group of people that have an infinite amount of diversity. And that almost sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, unified in diversity, but it's really not an oxymoron when you understand what, what, what Jesus is saying, uh, what Paul is saying, based on what Jesus has told him. The tie that binds the past, present, and future people of the true Christian church together, it isn't music or a place that we worship in. It isn't a certain style of, of dress. These are aesthetics that matter to the church and, the, and its culture especially. But these are not the invisible glue, the substance that makes us one. These are just the ways that we express our oneness. The thing that makes us one is that we are God's people. We believe in with our heart, hope, soul, and mind and pursue Jesus as Lord, as individuals who make up a unified family. And so what Paul's showing us in both these passages it drives home the point that to be a part of the church, it is something much more than what it has been reduced to in our world. It's more than just a one-hour worship gathering a week. As important as this is, I say this regularly, super important, high value on this. But there's other places in the kingdom that merit just as much a high value. What it means is to be a part of the church cannot be reduced to any singular event. It's actually to be a part, it's a recognition that you're part of a single eternal family. We really celebrate this when we talk about communion. That's one of the ties that binds all of God's people together. It's the, the corporate confession and pursuit of Jesus based on the fact that he has loved us, cared for us, and died for us. It's built on this unifying truth that there's one God and Father of all who is Lord of us all. And if you think about this, where Paul is going in both these passages with this idea of one spirit... He is in all of us. And that really is perplexing to me. It's as simple to understand as it is complicated for me. God is in all of us right now. He is the bind that ties. And so the, the use of these one statements is meant to get us thinking about how this connection between our individually devoted love for God is supposed to create a corporately devoted love for each other in God's church. And the place this is going, where Paul is going to be taking us very quickly, is, is another recognition that that, that love from Jesus devoted to him and each other, is also meant to be sacrificially poured out upon the world. So again, not a stopgap of grace, but conduits for it. Now, we did this in the very uh, early part of this, this teaching, at least the book of Philippians. You might remember where we talked about rooting. And we took a belief that Paul had about Jesus, and we jumped back to the origin point where Jesus actually spoke the words that gave Paul the belief. We're going to do the same thing now. Because this oneness idea... I don't want us to just think it's popping up in the jail cell. I want us to see how important belief is, and in this case, what we would call theology, how important Paul's understanding of Jesus is and how it shapes his ability to, to minister and to care well for him and the people in his life. So while, while I'm thankful for Paul's unity teaching here, it does us well to know that he gets this from Jesus himself in John 17. There's a, there's a tether back to the authority. Uh, Jesus' mouth proclaims this, and it is a truth now that is real in Paul's life. In that chapter, it's a section of scripture that records Jesus' final hours on earth. And in his last words, just before his crucifixion, he prays for his disciples in John 17, 20 through 21. Just after the Last Supper, he says this. My prayer is not for them alone. He's speaking to his disciples, but there's a premonition in this for the rest of the church as it grows throughout the world. My prayer is not for them alone. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us today. 
that all of them would be one. All of them. The disciples in the room, ready to see Jesus die on the cross, they are one with us because of the words of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. To those of us sitting in a movie theater smelling popcorn right now, somewhat ironically with the film God's Not Dead 2 down at the end of the... They should come here if they want to realize the truth of that. We can talk more deeply about the reality that God is not dead. Right? So the, the church today, us in this room, is, is, is one with the disciples in that room in the first century world. He says that all of them would be one. Father, in the same way you are in me and I am in you. That's why I said this is a truth that far spans, it exceeds the boundaries of it today in the jail cell. This is God who, who God is. He says, may they be in us so that the world would believe that you have sent me. And that's why I said this is, a, this is a teaching that actually is meant to validate the existence of God in the world. He says the oneness we share is going to be one of the ways, certainly not the only way, but one of the ways that the world will come to believe in the fact that Jesus is real and he was sent to the earth by the Father. So throughout history, there's always been this uh, a great weight placed on a person's last word. I've shared this analogy before when we've looked at last word type teachings in Scripture. But th- the reality here is that last words in this culture and ours, they are significant. The idea behind them is that a person is giving you what they believe you need to have to live vitally in life. What matters most to them, the thing that they could give you in their last breath, they're imparting this critical truth to you because they think it's so important that without it, your life is not going to be as good as it could be. So Jesus' last earthly breaths, he's giving this teaching. Now, with that in mind, I want to apply this logic to Jesus' last words in his prayer, right? Just before his death, Jesus prays to his Father in heaven, and he says, listen, make the loving unity the disciples are learning to have with each other. Make this the defining mark of of his people, of your people in the church. And he says this for the sole reason that our love for each other would be so God-honoring, so powerful and moving, that it validates the existence of Jesus to a skeptical world and helps them to believe. At least it begins to create validation points. And so you see, if we want to walk worthy of Jesus, which is where our new instruction is, if you want that joy to matter in the world, if you want to be an effective tool for the movement of his church, if you want to be a person who goes to a church, who worships at a church, worthy of the name of Jesus, then, and I hope you all do, it begins by making this a priority, a personal priority, to love and pursue God in a way that it causes us to be a unified family that treasures each other. In the same way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit treasure each other. That love is kind of the thing that God wants to use. And so Jesus' prayer and Paul's words, they reveal that the heart of God for the church at Philippi and us today, remember, we are one with the church of Philippi. So even though this teaching was given to them, it's just as applicable to us today. Jesus' prayer and Paul's words reveal that the heart of God for the church is to be a place where he can show people the very nature of who he is. When people walk into this room or eat wings or serve in the community or in a community group or whatever else we're doing, that should be a mirror reflection of the attributes of who God is. That's what we're striving for anyways. Obviously with lots of mess and failure and mistakes. I'm not talking about some kind of naive perfection here. But I'm saying what we should be striving for, the literal word Paul uses, we're going to get this to this in a minute, is that we should be striving to be proper reflections of who God is. And one of the greatest ways we reflect that is in the way we treat each other, the way we love each other, the way we serve others. So I want to encourage you this morning to let Jesus' prayer and Paul's command for unity, let it be the thing that shapes your life from this moment on. Let it be a catalyst to take seriously the responsibility each one of us has to cherish, cultivate, and preserve God's unity in this place, in our lives, and in the relationships we have that God gives us. Because knowing this is somewhat foundational to where we're going. 
it leads us to this second truth Paul shares with us this morning. He says this, another walking worthy clause. To walk worthy of Jesus, you must strive to guard the unity God has given us in Jesus. So joy in Jesus then turns into this idea of us loving and caring for each other in a unified spirit and others. And he says, listen, that spirit, that unity you have rooted in the joy of Jesus, you've got to strive to guard and protect it. Philippians 1, 27 through 28, he says, whatever happens, I'll add a little bit to this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what we just talked about. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. There's the charge right there. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. No trouble or trial or tribulation or circumstance should make us afraid. That's what he's saying here. Because your God is Lord of all of them. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. And so it's worth noting that even though you know, Paul commands this as an apostle, Jesus prays for this as the founder and authority and savior of our faith, right? Jesus prays for his church to be unified, but then Paul is clear, you and I have to do something to, to, do, to protect that. There's a striving that needs to take place that recognizes this is not necessarily a natural attitude. Christianity, we believe it's a supernatural attitude, but it's an attitude that needs to be defended in our natural state. This is because the kind of selfless, unified love that Scripture is talking about here, it can be very hard to come by, and it's even harder to keep once a church has it. And I want to just say this, because I say this a lot, when we get to teachings like this, that they have somewhat at times a negative tone. Paul's talking about, he's warning them about something important. I don't say this because I think this is an issue with us right now. It isn't. I'm saying this because when we bring these things up, whenever they're in the passages of Scripture we study, we do bring them up. And it's my hope that these become like preemptive passages that help to keep this stuff away from us. There is no trial or drama here. Consider this like the Jesus-centered roundup that keeps the weed at bay. That's what we're trying to do. So I want to affirm our body in saying that, that this really is a spirit of unity. There's some wonderful ways that God has bound us together in using us. But the other side of this coin, and, and this is something that we all need to be humble enough to recognize, me too, is because the human heart, when it is left unchecked, it's, it's almost always inclined to preserve self at the expense of others. I've used some Martin Luther teachings here in the past where he says the human heart is inclined to turn in on itself, meaning left unchecked, our ultimate goal in life, the natural battle cry of people, is not take care of others. It's usually take care of me at all costs. That's what happens when a heart is left unchecked, especially disconnected from the grace and the selflessness of who Jesus is. Now think about that reality. A command from Paul, a prayer from Jesus, right? The, the heavy hitters of the faith are saying, remember, this does not necessarily come easy. And when you have it, guard and protect it. Logically and theologically speaking, you cannot strive for the unity of spirit in a church, plural, if your heart is committed to solely preserving itself, singular. Can't happen. Because what happens is you become more important than the body, and you also become more important than the Lord of the body, Jesus. Where what Jesus is saying is, is I live my lives in such a way, this is the mind bender for me. Jesus is the only person on earth in history that can say, I am better than all of you. There is none of you, none of you that are better than me. Yet I'm going to live as if that is not true. Right? And Philippians 2, especially when we get into the great Christological hymn where we're going, the whole point of this passage is Jesus says, I had all the glory in the world, but I laid it down for the benefit of others. You cannot strive for the benefit of a group of people, plural, if you are more concerned with your individual 
yourself. I'm not saying you should neglect yourself, but I'm saying you have to recognize the tension here. This is why Jesus prays for our unity. And Paul uses some really strong language here describing our role in striving for it. In verse 27, he tells us to, to stand firm, to contend, if you will, for the unity of our faith in this place. And it's sort of like the equivalent of a combat general talking to his troops before battle. And he tells them, listen, whatever happens now, you cannot allow the enemy to take this ground. When we lose this ground, we lose the war. It's over. Guard it with your life. These types of commands, which he uses in other places, they have this type of urgency behind them. This hill, he says, is worth dying on. It's worth, it's worth defending it at all costs. He's saying it's a never-ending task, which requires a, a diligent, continuous guarding. Because there are always going to be threats seeking to take and compromise unity. He says, when you think of your life, okay, when you think of who you are in Jesus, when you think of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, God's church, one of the key responsibilities that we have to God's family is to be an agent of God's peace. And this is also a term used a lot in the New Testament. We're ambassadors for peace in the way we conduct ourselves with other people. We are ambassadors for peace, literally, that's the language in the Bible, for the way that we conduct ourselves with each other. It means we're to be promoting and protecting God's peace and unity against any threat to God's gospel unity. Now, here's where there's going to be an interesting dynamic, a shift that I want to make, because these terms are, are almost talking about protecting unity with authority. But that's actually not what is happening here. Promoting and protecting God's unity against threats, that is not some kind of you know, barbaric attack. What's happening here is we're going to have some blurry terms that I want to separate. This is how we'll wrap up this morning. In a sense, we're, we're being given a high calling, a walking worthy here. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, walking worthy of the, the calling of Christ. It's important to know that the high calling to guard and strive for unity in the church, it's so important that we really need, to, need a clear picture of what that looks like. I want to kind of talk a little bit about what it is and what it isn't, lest we in, embrace uh, uh, attitudes that are in the name of Jesus, dishonoring him. And so when I say calling, and I believe this is what this is, because Paul says this, he says this is a, he doesn't say this here, but in Ephesians, he talks about a walk worthy of the calling that Jesus has placed on our lives. When I say calling, uh, in the church world, in modern Western terms, this usually resonates with people as some kind of vocational call into the ministry. We restrict the use of the word to people like me. And that include, the word call includes people like me, but it cannot be limited to people like me. The idea of calling is not that God just makes some people pastors and missionaries or whatever the particular calling is. You know that at our church, if you've been with us for a while, calling is a very diverse word. The truth is that everything you do, your careers, whatever God has made you good at, that is a calling. So whatever your vocation is, you have been put there for a reason. You are accomplishing something, serving a community, laboring in whatever way, but you are also an agent for God's peace in that environment. So calling knows no boundaries. It just has different expressions. So I want to, as we talk about the high calling to guard, to strive, uh, excuse me, to strive to guard unity, that is not just something that a pastor or an elder or somebody is supposed to do. When we say calling, I'm talking about what a person's life looks like when they are called out of unbelief and into the loving unity of God's church. Calling means God has his hand on your heart, and you've affirmed it. You believe in Jesus, he is your Lord. So Paul's concern here is identifying the, the essential character qualities of the life of a Christian that, to a certain degree, validates that they are a Christian. Having these attributes in your heart is crucial to preserving the unity of the church. And according to Jesus' prayer, he says this is one of the ways that new people will, will have positive experiences with the love of God 
and it, it ups the chances of their desire to possibly pursue him as Lord. And so embedded in this calling idea is a, is a dual command. In one, on one side of the coin, it challenges us to walk in a, a manner worthy of who Jesus is and the way that we care for each other. But it's also a command based on what Paul says in Jesus to walk worthy in the way that we conduct ourselves in the public arena. You know, in the way we carry ourselves as we drive down Dunlawton Avenue. And I've shared my troubles with that street. I think they should just close it down and make it a walking pedestrian pathway only, right? No matter where we go, this is a command to, to think about what it's like to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of Jesus as we leave this place. So doing so helps us to deal with, this is my opinion now, but what I think is perhaps the greatest challenge the modern Western church will face in years to come. The greatest enemy of the gospel for us is and likely will be a growing skepticism towards Christianity, towards organized religion in general, but I think certainly towards Christianity. Now, let me give you a grassroots example of how high these stakes are. I shared this in the first year of our launch, so you either are so spiritual that you remember this or you're new and it'll be new to you. But it's a, it's a true story about a girl that cut my hair in New Orleans. Uh, she cut my hair for years, and she was a, a professing atheist. That's what she said she was. That's how the, the dialogue began as she was you know, trimming my hair. But you know, keep in mind, when you're representing Jesus in the public sphere, when the girl's got a razor next to your head, you want to conduct yourself in a manner worthy, lest you have a mohawk when you were just looking for a comb over or something. So, so she cuts my hair for years, and I just strike up a natural relationship with her. We just start talking because I'm bound to the chair. And we talk about all kinds of things, faith included. That's the element I'll talk about today. And the more I get to know her, the more I realize, I said this a few weeks ago, but she's actually a professing atheist that is more agnostic than atheist. And so just in case you don't know uh, the difference, an atheist, like in a hardcore way, says there is no God. Christopher Hitchens, we read about him a few weeks ago. That is true. Uh, is no God. But an agnostic is a person who is open to the idea of there being a God. They just don't necessarily believe in one. One is opposed. One is open to options, but not committed to anything. And so for personal reasons, they choose not to believe. And the truth is most atheists are functioning ag agnostics. They just don't know it. When, when you get down to the way they live their lives, they live as if there is a God. Unlike a true atheist, and we only quote true atheists in this room because they're very rare to find. They're very, most people are inconsistent. But Hitchens and Dawkins, these guys are true atheists from A to Z. So over the years, we identify that she's not necessarily an atheist but agnostic. And I begin asking her, since, since you are open to the idea of a God, what is your particular issue with the Christian God? And more often than not, people will say things like, our Easter talk, well, I have a hard time believing in the miracles or the resurrection, or I don't like the fact that uh, Jesus says, if I'm going to follow him, I've got to be selfless with time and money. I've got to give up stuff that matters to me, the morality of Christianity. They have these, these really serious issues. That's usually the questions that I'm addressing. But uh, they're theological issues, if you will. And there are many reasons why people are skeptical, many theological reasons why they're skeptical towards Christianity. But I did not have a chance to talk about any of them with her. Because that day she kind of said, listen, my issue is not with the belief that Jesus is real and that he could have died for the sins of the world. Some of that was kind of appealing to her. She just said, I couldn't follow Jesus because I'd had a really bad experience with some of the people of Christianity. And I want to talk about this because this can be something very real in a person's heart. It can also be like a smokescreen for deeper reasons for why they don't want to believe. But nonetheless, I took her at a word because I knew her well. And so she said to me this. She said, I had gone to a church for a little bit, uh, for a, a, a portion of my life. 
uh, and I, I started feeling incredibly ostracized. Uh, she used the word judge. That's a common word in our culture. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. But her particular issue was she had a ton of tattoos. And this is sad. This broke my heart a little bit. But she said, you know, I just felt like uh, I, people were constantly writing me about that. And I, get, I got to thinking, like, if they're so judgmental about the way my arms look, what are they going to think about when they know uh, about the rest of my life? And it really did deeply sadden me. It's a perfect example of unhealthy judgment. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. Uh, an unhealthy example of striving to protect Jesus' faith. That's ridiculous. But it's also something that I think requires the Christian to shed some light on. We have to have a proactive stance of grace with this, with these types of situations. And so I'd like to say two things about this, this situation. Let's look at the principle of it. First, if you ever speak to a person who's been hurt like this, it's really worth noting that there are, unfortunately, some people who in the name of Jesus act like this. They think that, that to, to honor Jesus, uh, to, to preserve his unity or protect his church, they think that you have to treat people like this. Walking worthy means that they, they kind of try to huddle in a group and, and isolate whatever they think is not honoring God. They think the call to stand firm for Jesus means that, that God, because he's a gracious and a good God, selected them because of who they were. And he pulled them out of society and put them on a very high hill where they were supposed to just look down on all other people, different from who they are in whatever way, in order to cast, key word here, unjust judgment on them. God is going to judge one day. He says that. But we're talking about unjust judgment, judgment that is un, unfitting of the name of God. That is a sad but true reality, and it happens. That said, we must also be willing to point out with tons of grace that that judgmental behavior is not, it's not present in every church. This is where I try to start here. I want people to know that that's out there, but that's also not out there. It is certainly not present in ours, and I'm deeply thankful for all of you that grace is our posture, our leading posture, not judgment. That's God's job, not ours. Also, I'm just going to say it, unjust judgment, arrogance, is not only found in Christianity. And it's just unfair to throw the whole faith under the bus because of uh, uh, isolated incidents with people. Unjust judgment and arrogance clearly are not marks of a walk worthy of Jesus. And they can be found everywhere in life. You don't need to just look in a church for that. You can find that in Walmart. Um, this morning, I was pulling in to get something to eat, and I got cut off. I mean, you thought like the, the, the drive-thru was giving out free bars of gold or something. Unjust. It was straight up wrong. But nonetheless, I just hit the brakes and, and let them go in front of me, right? That, that, that wasn't like somebody driving to restoration. That was just something that happened up the road. This exists everywhere. It's also important, important to note, though, that on the contrary, many of us have had meaningful experiences with God's people. And this is unfortunately, the, this is the story that is seldom told. We tell a different story, right, of how we've been touched by the goodness and grace of God's people, how we have cared for others in the name of Jesus and been loved by others, sometimes during seasons in our lives when we were true, truly unlovable. That exists. That's out there. That's real. And that story needs to be told a little more often than the one that I hear in the, in the, the, the barber's chair. And what I love about our church is some of you are those people. You're the people proactively making this difference. Okay? So first, it's worth affirming that, recognizing it's out there, but trying to bring some balance to that scale. And the greatest balance in that situation is that you are the ambassador of, of grace. Secondly, it's also worth pointing out, and this is, I think, where the warning is in this, that a person who sees their faith like this, the high on a hill faith, that attitude is very far from God and it is devoid of his love. It is, a, it is a, an antagonistic attitude that I think displays characteristics not of God. And he, here's why. I touched on it a few minutes ago. It's steeped in a hard attitude of a, of a false superiority. One that God himself has the right to show the world, 
but does not show us in Jesus. Like I said, if anybody could have said, if anybody could have proclaimed with clarity from the top of the hill that, that the world got it wrong, it was his son. Yet that's not what he does. He doesn't use his greatness, for lack of a better term, as an attitude to be superior to people. It, 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 that attitude is used to then humbly serve others. It, this type of attitude flies in the face of what God is calling us to do and to be. And so what is that calling, you might ask? What is the high calling of God? God's call, uh, God calls us to dwell in the very high calling of Jesus by living in lowliness with each other. And here's where we get somewhat of a contradictory statement. Highness in the Christian faith is actually validated by lowness in, in character, lowness in, in humility, essentially. That's where we're going to go in chapter 2. And that's perhaps what the ultimate mark of a life worthy of Jesus exemplifies. Think about this. Even though a life in Jesus, right, the whole first chapter of Philippians is rooted in this amazing power of God. In truly understanding that God's power is present in you, his authority is real, his grace is vivid in your life, he says the grandeur and the power of God in you should lead to a humility that changes the lives of people in your world. A lowliness of heart and mind in the lives of those who experience, not an arrogance. The fruit of Christ's joy in our, heart, in our hearts is not that we become spiritual giants. In fact, those who are spiritual giants, and believe me, there are many out there. We read their books and uh, we listen to them in podcasts. They are truly what we would deem spiritual giants, people that uh, men and women God is using in great ways. When you talk to those people, they seldom if ever see themselves like this. They don't see themselves as, as, as uh, giants meant to dominate a spiritual landscape. And that's why God uses them. They see themselves as humble servants to the king, there to make a difference in the lives of other people. They don't subdue, they serve. Rather, what we're talking about here is it's, it's supposed to lead, the fruit of joy should lead us to the lowly but God-honoring place where we become humble in our hearts. Gentle in the way that we treat all people. I'm not saying these are easy things to do, but they are the things we should be doing. Patient with people who are different from us. Patient and merciful with those who disagree with us. And Jesus takes us to a whole new level when he says, you even need to treat enemies like friends. Like for the Christian, there really should be no enemy. You really need to try to love those who don't even care about you. He says we're called to live like this for the sake of helping others live in and find Christ's joy in life. So the word lowliness is a word that a lot of people have a hard time embracing. Uh, no person in their right mind at first glance ever likes the sound of this word when it's applied to their lives. And you need to know this is not new. Lowliness uh, was despised and pretty much is still despised throughout all of history. Uh, in the Greek culture, which is largely, Greek and Roman culture is largely informing Paul's day. So in the Greek culture, it's never used in a positive context. And remember the Greek culture, we're essentially a modernized version of it. We're a modern version of an old Western world. Um, this idea of lowliness, gentleness, or humility, it's often equated with the posture of a slave. It's seen as weakness. It's likened to this idea of a disease. The Romans are even worse. They see it as pure weakness. Uh, years ago, in a personal study, I came across this interesting image. Uh, you guys know I'm kind of a history geek, and uh, I was doing some study on um, Roman, the Roman military, basically, just in case it ever re-erected itself and I had a chance to be a centurion or something. Very important study. So, so I'm, I'm studying this stuff, and a lot of this was connected to a series I did in the armor of God. You know, Roman sandals, Roman swords, all these are the things that Paul is talking about. So as I'm studying Roman sandals, I start reading all this incredible extra-biblical literature about what Romans did with their sandals. And so they, they would often take their sandals and imprint on the bottom, kind of carve, 
a picture of what looked like a person praying. This is what the this is what the army would do. Many of them, anyways. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. There's some kind of spiritual connection here. So the image was was interesting, and I began to research it. And because it was a guy on his knees with his hands like this, and I thought that this was some prayer posture. But I found out that it was not a prayer posture. Actually, it was very commonly done by Roman soldiers in the same way that a modern soldier today might tattoo uh, their combat unit on their arm. It's a mark of something that represents something in a certain culture. And in this culture, to my surprise, I learned the symbolism had nothing to do with prayer. Rather, it was, it was representative of the merciless, take-no-prisoners philosophy the Romans had when they went to war. The image symbolized that, that they would show no mercy, not even to those on their hands and knees begging to be spared. They were there to conquest, nothing less than that. That person who begged for mercy was seen as someone to be walked on. They were seen as somebody to be crushed. And so think about this. When you understand that cultural nuance, think about Pontius Pilate, right? He's a Roman governor. You wonder why he has such a hard time believing Jesus is really a king or the the guards that stand before the foot of the cross and they're mocking the king of the Jews. In a Roman's mind, a king does not get put on a cross. A king does not sacrifice for others. A king is not defined by lowliness. A king is defined by glory and arrayed in power. And if you look at some of the Roman rule, you'll see a lot of that glory and power was abused in incredibly unhealthy ways. Not loving and merciful, power. And much of our modern culture sees the virtues of a, of a gentle spirit and a merciful heart as weak too. So here's how we close. That's often, not in every sector, but this is often how this word lowly is used. It's used as a, viewed as a negative term. But scripture tells a different story about lowliness, especially when you take that story and you climax it in Jesus. Because he, he shows the world that there's a, great, there's a greater power, not in power, but in humility, in serving others. There's a greater power in leading by example when he becomes the, the first to lay down all that power. That's what Paul will tell us in Philippians 2. And he does it for the sake of others. He uses power selflessly, not selfishly. Living like this is a bit unnatural unless you ask Jesus to open your eyes to the reality. But this is the truth of most Christian truths. Uh, oftentimes for us to embrace these things to the point where we live them, Jesus has to show us something contrary to our beliefs, whether that is internal uh, moral or cultural, whatever it is, it takes Jesus bringing clarity to something that doesn't make sense to us in a season of life. This is why those of you who are in Jesus are in Jesus. There's a point where you said, no, this kind of makes sense now. That's the power of God's spirit working in you. And in this case, um, what's happening here is the ones who are living right are living contrary to what most of the culture that we live in tells us. Being countercultural like this is how much of the Christian faith is. Think about this. We're told to love our enemies and care for our neighbors, often at the expense of others. Paul will literally say this. We're told to be sacrificially generous with the things we tend to be most stingy with, in particular time and money. The resources we feel like are most our own are the ones that God says cannot only be our own because it leads to an unhealthy issue in life. And if you think about it, most of Christianity makes little sense at all until Jesus makes it make sense in your heart. And that's when things start to change. That's why there's hope in passages like this, even in joy, if you are without it. Maybe you're thinking like, man, we're talking about serving other people right now, and I'm not even believing the five talks we had on joy. I'm not even there yet. I want you to know that that's because there's a sense issue that needs to be sorted out in your heart. That's when things really change. It's when you realize there is nothing weak about lowliness. Rather, there is great strength in it. It's when you realize that the road to riches is not necessarily in a bank account, although there's nothing wrong with that. Rather, there's a different kind of richness that God talks about. There's a great strength in it, in the fact that God's economy is often found in spiritual poverty and humility. That it is the gentle, he says, not the powerful, 
that inherit the earth, the abusive. They, don't, they might have it for a season, but they don't inher inherit it for eternity. There's a day when God's justice truly does reign supreme on all of the earth. That those who show mercy are the ones who receive it, and that there is joy, as nonsensical as this sounds, we've got five talks to try to prove it, there is joy even in the hardship of life. In case you're wondering, that's just a partial list of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And that is a teaching that turns the way we see the world as we know it upside down, or rather, I would prefer to say, right side up again. These are the places where Jesus begins calling all people back to the way God meant for things to be, to the way he intends us to walk in a way that is honoring his kingdom. So in light of our teaching today, I want to ask you to do two things. The first is, if you are here without the love and the unity of God in your own heart, let this be the day that you let the rich promise that God wants to be one with you in Jesus. Let this be the day that you begin to believe that or start to wrestle with the reality of it. Let this be the day that you consider whether or not Jesus is Lord. Believe in him and recognize that to believe in him means the promise of his peace, the experiential promise of his peace is present in you. And if you are already in him, commit your heart to striving for and guarding it at all costs. Recognize what God has given you is immeasurable in worth. You want to preserve it in yourself through his grace and help others to experience it. Secondly, I want to do kind of true to form for, for, or in true to form for what Paul is going to say to us and is saying today. I want to ask each one of you to begin praying, if you have his peace in your heart, that God would show you some people in your life who are without it. I'd like to give you a number here, but I won't. I just want to challenge you with the task that all of you, including me, have people in our lives that we can start loving in the name of Jesus. Maybe some people we don't want to love or some people that we know God has been leading us to love for some time and we've not done it. I want to ask you to do what Paul is saying. Ask yourself if your faith is involved in the public arena or is it sheltered up like in a city on a hill, a hidden city, right? A light in a, in a dim basket. Is your faith only present in this room or is it present in the public arena? Ask yourself that today and ask yourself concretely whether or not, and I'm pretty sure the, true, the truth of this is whether, God does have people in your life that you can be his grace with. I don't mean jump up on your desk tomorrow with a bullhorn and start reading John 3.16. I just mean in a very gentle way, start letting God work in you in the way that he's leading you to. If it's the bullhorn, go for it. But I'm warning you where that's going to go. Not so good, okay? We will not respond to that email if you call about that problem this week. Because remember, who we are in Christ, right, it has to deeply shape what we do for Christ. So this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about how you walk with him? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, for humility. It's something we're going to talk about a lot over these next weeks. And humility, although it is not necessarily easy, it is scorned at times. We just sang about that, uh, to not be fearful of humility. I pray, Lord, that whatever our attitude is towards it, uh, that we would genuinely recognize the importance of it in your economy. And the importance of that starts at the very origin of the Christian faith. It is because of love, sacrifice, and humility that Jesus dies for us. So may the very reality of humility shown by you to us that changes us be the driving catalyst that helps us to recognize what Christ-centered uh, humility is and the importance of it in our lives and the benefit that it shows others, those that we care for. God, I pray now during this time of response, we've talked about many, many things this morning, that you would make this a time where we can pray and process, truly respond to you beginning in this moment and throughout the rest of this week. Bless the time now that we have thinking about who you are and what you mean in our lives and what actions you call us to take. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.